and they will ask, hey, Marcus and Valerian, I want one rose profile. How it will look like or how would you think about that? Okay, yeah, I think... Um... Welcome to coffeeis.me podcast, where me means you, or more precisely, us. This is the show where your host, Valerian, without using any interrogation techniques, convinces coffee professionals to reveal their secrets to teach and inspire you to make better coffee and earn a few bucks on the side, if that's what you fancy. Let the show begin. Welcome, Coffee is Me listeners. Uh, today, I have my former co-host, or I guess maybe future co-host, Marcus Young on the line. Hey, Marcus, what's up? Hey, everybody. And hey, Valerian, it's great to be back. I think, um, yeah, we've stopped doing these together for a little while and I miss it. So I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. Yeah, in the beginning, it was a technical issue, but later I kind of enjoyed being myself. Sorry for being selfish. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I understand we all like to be little Ayatollahs sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, thanks. No, I, I miss you too, man. I miss you too. I miss your knowledge. But I have to say, our guests were pretty good and they helped me to go to this podcast. You know, I hope that they were fun for everyone. Today, I was thinking that let's just connect together and talk what we are doing because the world world changed in March and we kind of went a little bit different ways, but on some kind we didn't because it's all kind of connects. So I'm going to talk about what we are doing right now, you and me, and then we hit the most popular topics we are asked. And we're going to talk about starting a coffee company, obviously. We are going to talk about roasters, about roast profiles, about branding, and a lot of awesome stuff you guys ask us all the time. But before we dive into that, I do this rarely, but I think it's time to ask you for help. This podcast is existing only because of you. You guys are giving us the pep talk. You guys are giving me feedback. You guys are giving us reviews. And those help us going. So I would like to ask you to go and review this podcast. Let me really know what you guys think. You can mention also the topics. You can criticize my accent. It's all game. But it's very important that those reviews appear on iTunes, on Spotify, on Stitcher, or wherever you listen to this podcast. So thank you so much for helping with your reviews. And now it's time to talk to Marcus. Hey, Marcus. So let us know what are you doing right now? Yeah, thanks, Valerian. Um, right now, I am doing a lot of work online, like most of us. Um, and we've got some awesome webinars that we've put together. Um, so I'm constantly thinking about how to create new webinar content, how to make the courses that we're already offering even better. And one of the cool benefits of taking one of the webinars is students get... Um, a little one-on-one -on -one advising with me after the course. So I also find myself several times a week and, oh, you know, calls that kind of range from maybe half an hour to 45 minutes talking with students um, and learning more about their particular businesses and their particular struggles and successes. So that's how I spend a lot of my days right now. And it's really awesome. Just to mention what's the difference between Coffee Pro and the webinars, the Coffee Pro and CoffeeCourses.com are online courses which are already filmed, they are already done. You basically use it as you would use a Netflix. You come in and you learn when you want on your own time and you get access to all the courses throughout your membership. Or you can buy them individually if you want. They are incredible, right? This opportunity to study independently and to review material at your own pace and to go back to concepts um, after maybe trying some things hands-on is, is so unique. And it's really incredible, not just the content, but the way you can access that. Right. And on the other hand, you have the live webinars where people can actually be interactive. It's uh, like a, almost like a class, live class, but it's on Zoom and people can interact and they have that one hour extra consultancy which sounds pretty awesome i never thought about it but maybe i steal that idea from you 
<laughs> of course. We call this episode the Black Friday edition for two reasons. One, that you guys are going to get an awesome value when we're going to talk about uh, the branding and uh, the coffee roast profiles and all these things, which usually you have to pay money for if you want to get it from us, right? <laughs> but uh, we also <laughs> call it because we have a specials for you. What's the special from your side, Marcus? Yeah, I'm really excited. We are offering a, a pretty rare discount on these courses of 15% off um, any upcoming webinar. Oh, So that's um, pretty many. It's not like a one-time code. Somebody could decide to come in and sign up for multiple webinars at once and, and take advantage of the same discount. Oh, they can buy more than one? Yeah, yep. Wow, awesome. Okay. How about you, buddy? Well, we offer on Coffee Pro a very rare. We stop doing any discounts, I would say. Uh, so we, it's a pretty rare on Coffee Pro. You can save now hundred dollars. So it's not four ninety nine ninety five, but it's three ninety nine ninety five. You have to use the coupon Coffee is me. But if you decide that you know what the it's maybe the Coffee Pro membership is not right uh, for me. You want to kind of try out other courses, maybe one or two. Then uh, we offer 25% off of any course. You can take also more courses and because that's how the coupon code is set up. I didn't even thought about it. And uh, the other advantage is that if you become a Coffee Pro and you want to join Marcus's webinars or later our live courses, you get also 15% off those. And do your math. If you are serious about learning coffee, if you are a Coffee Pro member and you will sign up for a live course, you will get money back very fast, I would say. On the other hand, if they purchase your webinars, while they are purchasing it, they can also add to the cart the Coffee Pro for $3.99.95, correct? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it, we make it really easy. We've tried to tie both programs to one another in our shopping carts and things. So if you come to the bootcoffee.com, check out of a webinar, there's an option right there to add the Coffee Pro membership at the discounted price and just check out all at once. And if you go to coffeecourses.com and you purchase uh, Coffee Pro, then in your dashboard, you will find the link to the coupon code to purchase the webinar. So whichever works for you, some people are more uh, live learners, they prefer the live education and they maybe later they want to kind of review it so they purchase the Coffee Pro program. Some people like to kind of get the first theories into them, learn the first things and then join the webinars because they want to ask uh, very concrete questions. Each of them work very well, so perfect. It, it does. And, and I think they complement each other really well also. I mean, Willem, who presents most of the content on coffeecourses.com, um, you know, he and I sometimes have slightly different approaches to things. So students can get the benefit of, um, of a variety of different approaches, but ultimately all aiming to accomplish the same thing, which is delicious coffee that customers want to buy. Perfect. And now we will stop torturing you with our pitch and move on. And this is a good segue because I was actually curious about this Recently, I was uh, browsing the social media like a good boy does, and I found a kind of a post from a coffee professional, very well-respected coffee professional, basically criticizing other coffee schools that they don't have a certain approach to coffee roasting. What do you think? Is there only one approach to coffee roasting? Is there only one theory, or how, how does this work? Yeah, that's... That's perfect. I think um, I saw that post as well. We're not going to name names, but people could research it if they're interested. I, I don't think that there's one approach to roasting coffee. Um, I don't think that there's one approach to a profile of a customer. Anyone who's spent a little bit of time working in a cafe or serving coffee to people one-on-one -on -one knows that you know there is no one coffee that's right for everybody. And I don't think there's any one way to roast coffee that's right for everyone. I think, you know, there's defects, right? There's defects in the green coffee. There's defects that you can get to through roasting. Um, those are a little different though, right? It's, I don't think that there's any one way, one way to roast coffee. It's so highly dependent on the roasting machine, on mm -hmm. the goals of the roast master herself. And, 
your customers and what they want to drink. You know, I want to sell coffee that people want to drink first and foremost. If you develop a Ross profile, how, how, how do you think about it? Like, what would be your thought process? I mean, we just re- uh, issued a free video, what Willem thinks about it. And you said you have a little bit different, maybe different approach. I don't know if you saw that video. If you didn't see that, actually better, because <laughs> we might expect something else from you. But what would be your thinking process when you decide about, uh, okay, what kind of Ross profiles am I going to use? Yeah, you know, for for me, of course, it starts on the cupping table and it starts with uh, an assessment of the coffee from the beginning. So it's, you know, it's it's understanding the green coffee, the density, the bean size, some of the physical characteristics of that coffee. Um, it also starts with what I find on the cupping table, right? So a cupping roast being a very specific profile that... I usually think of as being a window, right? It's kind of where you're at the the maximum um, point of enzymatic flavors. You're getting to the maximum of sugar browning flavors, but you haven't got into any of these kind of carbon-driven flavors. Um, and, you know, that's probably not the best way to roast the coffee for production, but it's the best picture into what the coffee has to offer. So, you know, once I kind of have an understanding of the coffee in general, like what is its potential, you know, then I can start thinking about how do I want to roast this coffee? Um, where am I going to use this coffee? Am I roasting this coffee to brew it as espresso? Is this coffee going to be roasted and go into a blend? Is this a coffee that I want to be broadly appealing? You know, something that just an everyday grab and go little bit of cream in their coffee drinkers going to come back for day after day. But also a coffee that somebody like Valerian, who's quite serious about his coffee, is also going to find interesting enough, right? Or, you know, on the other end of that, is this a coffee that I know is kind of a boutique, um, high-end, like, coffee for coffee nerds coffee, right? So I, I kind of have to think about all those things before I can ever think about what my approach is going to be in the roaster. Coming back to that uh, post, I don't like people who are deterministic and tell you that this is the only way. And I think that that kind of thinking really does not help us as a human race. You know, it does not move us ahead. You know, if you come up with a super weird rose profile, like recent, like, I don't know, there was this company who was doing uh, wood burn roasters and their roast was like 20 minutes and it was a medium roast. I don't think that was my favorite coffee, but on the other hand, kudos to them that they came up with something different. Because if you are not different, if you don't have you in that product, what's the point? Why, why would I roast the same way as, as, as my competition, right? Exactly. And, and to me, I mean, that's, yeah, there's a lot of science to this. Um, you know, even science can't point to what the correct way is with something like roasting because of the ultimate subjectivity of our customers. Um, but yeah, and I, you know, I'm not one to, to criticize somebody if they take a beautiful fruity Ethiopian and roast it to second crack, right? That might not be approach I would choose to take with Mm -hmm. that coffee, but if they really love it, if they can roast second crack coffee, that's still sweet and still has some of the character of the roast of the, of the, the farm and they have customers that demand that. I'm not going to criticize that. I want to help them to do that the best that they possibly can. Is that the goal to highlight the farm? Me and you, definitely. There's no question about that. But maybe for that company and the customers, that does not really matter. They want a cheap coffee. They want a smoke or whatever they're looking for. I'm not really sure. And I think that's a legit to say that they have a total right to that and they have their product. Don't forget that, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, the dark roast was the king. That was that We actually remember the, when people were saying that, oh, the light roast is only for mega corporations because they want to save on the weight. Exactly. And now the argument's just the opposite, right? Oh, Pete's and Starbucks and these dark roast companies, only they roast very dark because they just want to buy cheap coffee, right? So people always accuse these bigger companies of being stingy. Um, and, you know, there's, you could argue it either way, which 
is kind of the point that people make. To me, it's like the idea of, you know, I would just like to have more palatable coffee available in more places. And if somebody could could develop a roast profile that allows them to buy, you know, equitably priced but inexpensive coffees and sell their ultimate product to a gas station, great. You know, if it's a step above all the other gas station coffee out there, but the gas station can support their business model with it, I'm going to be excited about that. It's like surprising coffee in surprising places. Um, it's you. It's about you uh, as a roaster to come up with your roast profile and don't think that somebody will tell you that this is the only way. We, we, we actually on coffee courses, I'm sure you do that also on your webinars because I attended your live course. We teach you the, the theories of how the coffee behaves in a roaster. We don't give you roast profiles, really. You know, that's not our goal. Our goal is that you understand how the coffee behaves and you put you into it. And that's fascinating because if you want to start a coffee roasting company or if you are a coffee nerd, isn't that fascinating that you develop your own product and not look up a book and say, oh, this is the only way you, you can do it. It was, you know, I respect that profession a lot. I have all his books and I love them. But that post was really disappointing to me to see that. Yeah, it seems right. It seems, you know, it seems lazy in some ways. I right. Mean, it's... And, and I think it's lazy because I feel like given a little bit of time and the right tools, I can teach somebody the technical skills, right? Through practice, through repetition, and through training, just about anybody can learn to pull a good shot of espresso to a formula, to roast coffee following a formula, right? Mm -hmm. It's just being a machine operator. Um, it's lazy, right? Because it doesn't give you the creativity. It doesn't give you the experience of tasting everything, both profiles that look beautiful and profiles that look weird and making an assessment based on what's in the cup and using that to learn, using that to drive your decisions for the next time you roast that coffee. It also simplifies coffee, which is not true. Coffee is so freaking complex. And we are still not understanding it in many, many, many ways. On the other hand, we have our taste buds and noses and our perception of flavor and taste, which is, again, so super complex and individual. You cannot, you just cannot put it into one formula. Just not possible, you know. Exactly. So, But I, but I think I'll, I'll kind of wrap maybe, you know, I don't know if we want to wrap up this section. but I, Yeah, I let's do that. Let, yeah, let's move too, on. I think there is value for an individual roast master or a specific roasting company in maybe having sort of a general stock generic approach to some of their coffees. Because, you know, the, the realities of running a coffee business are that you don't have time to spend hours and hours designing 20 different potential profiles for a coffee that you're going to bring into production, right? You need a well of or a recipe book of kind of off the shelf profiles where when you get a brand new coffee in, you can just get into the roaster, roast it, have something that probably tastes pretty good and that's not going to be weird or out of the realm of expectation for your customers and start selling it, right? Yes, you might change that profile in small ways over the, the coming weeks, but there is value in having kind of a one a one-trick pony approach to, to a couple of different coffees. Yes, absolutely. And I will be very frank about it. That's how we do it at Green Plantation, and that's how we did it at, in Unleashed Coffee. Because once you are doing production, it's production. There is no gaming, toying anymore. You know, Especially if you have a small team, you don't have a, a, like a, a coffee development or product development team. It's a bit harder. You, know, you, you are basically... Master of all trades. It's, yep. it's and more complex. And the same thing with Central City Coffee and with Question Coffee. And I would say that the very largest companies do that even more. When you're mm -hmm. roasting a container of coffee a day, the Columbia you're roasting today is going to be a totally different coffee than the Columbia you're roasting in two weeks. You know, even if the profiles are similar, there's going to be differences and you need an approach that's going to create consistency because that's what I think your customers ultimately want. Anyhow, yeah. let's move on because I think that 
we already started this, uh, how many ROS profiles you should have. And I'm always thinking about me in 2002, when there was no Coffee Pro, there was you know, no education. I think Probat in Germany was doing some courses, which were basically about how to turn on and turn off the roster. So there was no profiling or nothing like that. And again, it was a long time ago. And I'm thinking like, if somebody is today like that, and they will ask you, hey, Marcus and Valerian, I want one ROS profile. How it will look like, or how would you think about that? Okay, yeah, I think, um, and and I do think there's value here because sometimes you just get a coffee, you have, or you step up to a new roasting machine, um, right? There's times when you just have to start from a blank slate, mm-hmm. um, and you know, for me as someone who kind of likes medium roast coffees or slightly lighter coffees, um. The first thing that I actually have to do is understand that coffee on a roaster and kind of understand both where first crack and second crack occur. So I'll actually roast a batch to second crack um, and I'll taste it. But I'll use the data that I receive from that to design a profile where I will target an ending temperature that's kind of the mid temperature, um, the median temperature between first crack and second crack. Mm-hmm. This idea of a midpoint temperature if you've taken SCA courses. Um, you know, and, and that's only one part of it, but I find that roasting to that point and, and making the ultimate decision just based on what I smell and what I see in the trier, that usually gets me to a roast degree that I find pretty palatable. Um, okay. So you know, that's, that's, like I said, that's not all of it, but that's kind of a, a reasonable starting point for me to understand like on my roaster. What would be your timings? Exactly. And so then, you know, from there, I, I kind of think about crafting a profile where I would spend maybe half of my total roast time um, kind of in the drying phase. So in this phase from, the, from charging the green coffee into the roaster until color change. Um, and for me, I call color change um, the point where there's no more green in my coffee when I see it in the trier. And I think even more importantly, when I smell it, it's lost all characteristics of being like straw or damp grass, and it smells totally dry. So that's when I kind of mark yellow. So I want about half of my roast time to be in that phase. Um, And, you know, so that's probably going to be five to six minutes of my total roast. You know, and then from there, I usually start slowing down my roast a little bit, and I would target first crack somewhere um, around eight and a half to nine and a half minutes. You know, I would have to kind of let this coffee tell me what it's doing in the roaster. I would watch how it's progressing. I would be smelling it. Um, But, you know, give me a little bit of a window. And then once I hit first crack, I would aim for a 17 to 18% development time. So from okay. first crack until I end my roast, I would be in that 17, 18% window. Okay. Um, you know, and, and I find with like that kind of midpoint temperature and its corresponding color, that kind of uh, development time, that like slightly longer drying time, I get a coffee that is a nice balance of like sugar browning flavors, the kind of chocolate, caramel, vanilla, and also maintain some of the more like acid driven qualities. So it's still going to have a, a brightness to it. You know, if there's like fresh fruit or those qualities in the coffee, I can still detect them. So that's my starting point. That's my, that's my gun to my head approach. Okay. So in my case, I actually developed this profile based on coffee pro when I was filming coffee pro. I already had green plantation and obviously I got all the lessons for free because I was filming and editing them. I really loved the approach when the first crack is around 10 minutes. Then you really, really slow down the whole process. I took it out a little bit before the uh, first pop stopped. Again, it's, it's a very slow process. So usually that meant one and a half, two minutes. So if it's 10 minutes, that would be like 15 to 20%. Am I doing right to the math? No, that's that sounds awesome. I, I just did the math. If if 
if you hit first crack at 10 minutes and you ended your roast at 12 minutes, that would be like a about a 17% development time. Really, we're not that far off, right? If my drying no. time is about six minutes and that's about half of my total roast time, yeah, we're talking again like a, you know, it could be an 11 or 12 minute roast. You know, if I'm hitting first crack more at eight and a half, nine and a half minutes, then my drying time would be a little bit shorter. My total roast time a little shorter. But you can see that we we like similar coffees, we like similar profiles, but we're thinking about it very differently. And yet, yeah. I bet you that you will like my coffee and I bet you I will love your coffee. So, right. you know, And as you're describing that and as I think about roasts that I've done to midpoint temperature, there's often still some beans just finishing first crack at that temperature. Yeah, so that's true. I, I bet that if we were to put these side by side on a table, we, we should do this Valerian. Um, maybe I'll set aside some coffee for you to roast next time you're in the lab um, with your approach. I'll roast the same coffee with my approach, and then we can taste it together but separately. Okay, that's a, that sounds fun. So, but if I can cheat and introduce one more profile, and let's say I am into business and I want to do business in Europe, and I want to be in a third world coffee, not in uh, you know medium or dark roast coffee. I would definitely play with the first crack at eight minutes. And me personally, slow down the roast very much, even if possible, then slower than uh, before and take it, try to take it out at, you know, like, again, probably it will be one and a half to two and a half minutes somewhere. The later you can do the better because that's very fashionable in Europe. The, the, they call it the Scandinavian rose, but my rose is different a little bit because I would really extend the uh, rose development time. That's a time after the first crack starts. The reason is that what I noticed on most of the third wave roasters in Europe, what I tasted, that they are still green. Those coffees have still a lot of chlorganic acids in it. It tastes to me a little bit like grass and I don't like it. So that's why I would try to kind of get rid of them as much as I can and yet still keep the kind of a sharp, piercing acidity what people like. Yeah, I agree. And, it's like I want to get beyond the like chlorogenic acids and the kind of grassy acids, get beyond the kind of cereal mm -hmm. um, and multi flavors. Um, but yeah, maintain that that really bright acidity. Perfect. We gave you two and a half rose profiles, which uh, two of them are very similar, but thinking differently. And let's move on. Like again, let's imagine that you have these company with just starting, they spend all their money on the coffee roaster, which we'll touch to, but now they need to buy green coffee. And let's say you can have only three green coffees in your portfolio. What kind of coffees they will be? What would you, what would you buy the first three sacks of coffee? Well, I love this Valerian. Um, I love this question for a couple of reasons. One is that um, I've always wanted a roasting company where I didn't have too many green coffees in my inventory. <laughs> um, you know, I, I have the benefit of talking to a lot of um, green coffee buyers and a lot of kind of mature companies. And almost across the board, as I talk to them, I they're dismayed at the number of green coffee skews that they have to track and keep track of. And they wish that they could have a more simplified approach to buying. Um, so I love this question because it, I, philosophically, I think that, you know, maybe three is a little aggressive, but buying more coffees, um, buying more of fewer coffees is a beautiful way to run a business. Well, one of them would be a decaf. Okay. Interesting. Um, I think decaf is really an important category, even though it's not a big seller for most roasting companies. Um, I think if you don't have a decaf and you don't have a good decaf, you're leaving customers at the door. And it's not just your decaf customers. Um, it could be others as well. Mm -hmm. When I think about a typical decaf drinker, this is someone who, you know, either for health reasons or because of the time of the day, whatever it is, they're still choosing to come and buy a coffee from you because they know it tastes good. Um, they're not getting the caffeine bump, you know, they're not getting all of that. Maybe it doesn't taste quite as good as a non-decaf coffee, but they're still buying coffee. Like that's, that's a coffee fanatic. I want that person to be my customer. 
you know, if I can wow them with my decaf, I can probably wow um, their friends, their kids, their family who buy regular coffee as well. So I think it's a really important coffee to have. So I'd have a decaf. Um, okay. So that, there's one of my answers. You want to you want to go back and forth on this one, Valerian? What would be the first coffee you would pick? So my first coffee would not be decaf. And actually, I would not put decaf in my portfolio simply because, you know, the, my biggest business I ever built is the Slovak business. And in Slovakia, the decaf is not that popular. That said, that said, we have a decaf and do, we're doing very well with it, considering the Slovak market, simply because we roast it fresh and we are the only one. We are the only one who roasts it fresh. And we are mocked by the third wave people. And I always say, well, you know, you turn 40, 45, 50, you realize that, you know, caffeine is really like strong. Like I, I get buzzed, so I can have to be very careful. And we address these people. So that's cool. But that's not, not, not going to be my first coffee. My first coffee would be Brazil. Ideally, a Sandra Natural Brazil, which I can use beautifully in uh, an espresso blend. And or drink as a very solid, very rich uh, filter. So my first choice would be Brazil, Sandra Natural. Perfect. Um, you go. Yeah. So I think my next coffee, and it's um, you know, I could say Sandra Natural Brazil easily, you know, because I think what I would look for is a coffee that's very sweet, that's has a full body. That's primary kind of flavor con components would be chocolate and caramel and, you know, maybe some vanilla, just, you know, not a ton of fruit, but a little bit of acidity. Um, that would be the kind of flavor profile that I would look for. Um, now, maybe I would find that probably most easily and affordably. I would find that in a pulp natural Brazil. But, you know, I might also look at certain Colombians, I might look in Honduras, I might mm -hmm. look, um, even to like Tanzania or Uganda. So I, I would be making this determination based on a flavor profile primarily, and also with keeping price in mind. Um, and yeah, and I, and I go for this coffee for a lot of reasons. I mean, one is, I think it's broadly appealing. Um, you know, it's going to be a coffee that a coffee nerd may not go for, but they're not going to object to. Um, and it's probably the coffee that my dad would go for every day, right? It can mm -hmm. really kind of, it'll probably stand up to a lot of brew methods. It'll be very forgiving. Um, and it becomes a really important like backbone to a blend um, that provides, you know, a lot of that sweetness, a lot of that body that I might be looking for in a house blend or an espresso. So right. that's, I would be thinking of it from a flavor profile standard first and then kind of country second, but I'm right there with you, Valerian. Well, just to kind of add to that Sandra natural Brazils or, you know, any, like, uh, it can be pulp natural too. And, uh, we also had some washed Brazils. It's interesting that what you said that, you know, uh, let's say the third way people, coffee nuts will not go for it. That said, since very beginning, Green Plantation, the coffee nerd company of uh, Central Europe, our bestseller was always Brazil. Always. It was shocking for me because for me, Brazil, as you said, is chocolate nuts. That's it. I mean, I like them on, on espresso. I love them, but I don't think they are that interesting, you know. Uh, but it seems that our customers do find them super interesting. Yeah. So sometimes it's something what we wish we, we were, you know, and sometimes we, we, what the reality is. The reality is that Brazils will sell well. They are very low price, so you will make, you know, nice money on them. Uh, let's be pragmatic about it. And they are super universal. So that's why I would 100%. go. Uh, and, yeah, and, yeah. and, you know, with the companies that I've had or customers I've worked with or students and their companies that have come through courses, it's that, you know, it might be in our minds, the, the hippest, most like bleeding edge coffee company out there. But I would put my money on the fact that their best selling coffee is probably something that kind of falls into this broadly appealing realm. 
It's probably right. either a blend or a little bit of a darker roasted coffee or you know whatever on their menu is the most approachable, maybe the most traditional, if you want to think of it that way. Yeah, and you know, I picked, uh, I would pick Brazil also because you don't have to roast it dark in order to appeal to dark roasters. And we did it with Anish Coffee. We actually turned one guy, he's William's boss on his nonprofit. He he was always like, he wanted such a dark coffee that I was like, I cannot roast it darker, man, because I will have a roaster fire. <laughs> so, but then, you know, William stopped bringing in during the COVID coffee to the office, but he already brought his own coffee. So basically the office st- stopped buying coffee from us because there were not enough people there. But he just brought his own stash, which was always like a medium roast. And his boss fell in love with it and simply said, oh, this, I don't mind it because it's not strong acidity. So he gave it a chance and he fell in love with it. But speaking of my second coffee, there's two ways to go here. I would want something which is has more acidity, more liveliness. I can use on a filter. And if I'm a budget cautious person, I will go with a Colombian. And if I can splurge a bit more, I would think of Ethiopia and Kenya. Especially if you're building a third-way company, Ethiopia would be definitely my first choice. If you're thinking about, let's say, a bit more budget-cautious company, Colombia would be my choice. And basically, again, I'm thinking that I will do espresso blend, which is a bit more sparkly, so I can use Brazil and Colombia. But also, Colombia itself is a very nice kind of crispy coffee for your filter brews. Yep. No, I, I like that. Um, this is now where I've backed myself into a corner by having my that decaf, right? And I have to just pick one more coffee. Because <laughs> um, if I could pick two more, I would I would maybe make some different decisions. But man, man I loved your decaf. I, I think that was a great discussion because it was a real concrete example from Europe how decaf works and why would I put it in even though everybody finds it as a joke on social media, yes, we sell a lot. And people you know, who want it, it's, it's, it's important for them. Yep. I'm here to make people happy. I'm not here just you know, being a, a Nazi nerd about coffee, which I love to be sometimes, but I'm, I want to make you happy with my coffee. So no, that was a very good choice, I think, because now we could discuss it. So anyhow, sorry to interrupt you. You no, go with your third so. coffee. Yeah, so you know, I think for my for my other coffee, I would I would also look for something that would be a, a very distinct counterpoint to um, my kind of chocolatey, sweet, not very interesting coffee. <laughs> um, not very interesting to me, but maybe a bestseller. And yeah, and I think I would be looking um, Ethiopia first and foremost, a, probably a washed Ethiopian or a very clean natural Ethiopian. Mm-hmm. I'm going to want something that exhibits acidity. Um, I'm going to look for something that's, you know, still sweet, but more on just like cane sugar or honey sweetness. I'm going to want something with some fruit. Um, you know, ideally something that I can play with in the roaster and maybe with one approach, like really showcase like sparkling bright acidity and fresh fruit characters maybe with a slightly different approach in the roaster, I can develop a coffee that's a little bit more balanced acidity, still sweet, and those fruits maybe become more like dried fruits. Um, And so I'd be looking for this coffee for a couple of reasons, because I would be thinking about how can I roast it in a couple of different ways um, to broaden my roasted coffee offering. Um, Mm. and, you know, and I think that the, you know, the Brazil or my like chocolatey coffee could also accomplish that, you know, it's going to taste a little bit different as a medium roast, but also maybe it can hold up in a darker roast as well. Right. Cause I'm starting to think now, how can I take limited green supplies, but create, um, an interesting enough offering of roasted coffee for my customers. Awesome. Yeah. Smart. So, you know, it might be blending two different roast profiles of one coffee or two of one coffee and one of another. Um, but you're really looking for coffees that stand on their own, that can be roasted and taste good a couple of different ways, and that can play well together in blends. Um, so I, I would start in Ethiopia. I think your idea of a Colombian also makes perfect sense, um, you know, but... Part of it is that, you know, 
if I only have these handful of coffees, I need coffees um, that are going to taste good long time because I'm not going to be able to necessarily buy new stocks in six months from somewhere else. So Ethiopian coffees often hold up very well over time. They often taste as good, sometimes even better a year on than they did when they first arrived. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, with the case of your Brazil, you can get fresh coffees from lots of different corners of Brazil at different times of the year. So that could be part of it as well. Okay. So my third choice is uh, purely pragmatical. It's a business choice. It would be something exotic, like nobody else sells in your segment. So if you are a third wave coffee, I would try to find origins which are not popular in a third world, a third wave, sorry, world in around you. A good example for Green Plantation, and boy, now probably competition is listening. <laughs> good example for us was Dominican Republic. Hmm. Nobody was selling Dominican Republic. It was considered boring. Although I have to say, I was super surprised how interesting the Dominican coffees were when, when we got it. But it can be something else. It can be if you find an interesting lot from Laos or China. Now we have China. So, you know, in the last podcast, we talked about uh, women producers. And you know, since last year, I was trying, trying to find more female women producers for Green Plantation, and one of them is from China. And it's not the coffee which you go like, oh, florals, whatever. It's a little bit more subtle. It's still interesting to me, especially that it comes from a region which is famous for pu'er tea. It's kind of fermented tea. Uh, I kind of feel that fermentation in that coffee a little bit. Maybe it's something in my head because I know where it's from. Maybe not. But it's we sold a lot of it. It's organic. It's female producer, and it's from country which people never heard of in our segment. So I would go with something exotic, and I would be brave with it. Go and get something which what nobody has, and maybe it's not the, your uh, top scoring coffee. But it will be something what your consumers go like, oh, wait, okay, I can travel now to China with your offering or Dominican Republic or whatever that is. So that would be my third choice. No, I, I love that. And um, and your third choice dovetails into, you know, one of the reasons why I like this philosophy of having, you know, some sort of a sourcing strategy that, that encourages you to be, you know, a little bit thoughtful in, as far as the coffees you're buying and not just buying everything. Um, and I think part of it is with my kind of very extreme approach of, the, of only three coffees here that we've been discussing, the beauty of that, if you do it well, is that it does free you up to find the gems, to find the unique coffees and bring them in, um, and to promote them to your customers in a very clear and distinct way. Right, Valerian? Like with your example of your three coffees, um, it's not like there's a ton of noise about all of these exotic coffees, all of these, like everything's always unique and special in the next hip thing. Boy, when you bring in that coffee from the Dominican Republic and then five months later, you have the coffee from the producer in China, you can really focus all of your efforts towards kind of promoting those coffees and talking about what makes them special and celebrating the growers of those coffees. In politics, they call it, you own the narrative, right? <laughs> 100%. Um, and I love that because, you know, it, it does get confusing when you see these companies that you go to their website and they have 50 different coffees available and you go to their special offerings and there's like eight different special offerings available. Like, oh my gosh, like, that's awesome. I love that company. But I fear that when a truly special offering comes up, it gets lost in the, in the shuffle. Yeah, you know, here is an interesting thing, like, and we can discuss this, that how many coffees should coffee company have on their portfolio? Because I thought that having, let's say, four or five coffees is a sweet spot, and it gives you kind of like a focus, so you can really focus on the quality of those coffees. That's how we did Green Plantation in 2012, and we restarted from going from dark rose to light rose. But very fast, we learned that our customers love to travel. They want to try 
all the time new coffees. And if they don't find it on our offering, they go somewhere else. Mm -hmm. So what we do, we're still not offering 20 coffees. It's just not possible. I mean, that would be nuts even for accountants, you know, and just crazy. So what we do, we, our offering is much bigger. I, th I think it's like between seven and eight coffees. And we change them very often, which is pretty hard because you have to redo your website all the time. You have to put those coffees on a website. You have to obviously kind of think about the profile, which again, we simplified. And, you know, as we talked about that, some companies have few profiles and we use those just to streamline the production. But it's still hard work to always find new lots. Yeah. And I think it's, yeah, that gets down to knowing your customers because I, I really do think there's, at least in the U.S. from my experience, there's kind of two, two camps of customers. There's the customers that want the familiar, the consistent, um, the no surprises, right? It's like, these are the folks that will be upset if you swap out a component of your blend and it changes a little bit. Then there's the other camp of customers, which are those kind of seeking to travel with you. As you said, they want novelty, they want adventure, they want unique tastes, they want something dynamic. Um, and we have to pay attention to both. On other hand, if I can play the devil's advocate to convert people who like to try different things, it's much easier than somebody who is set in, in her or his ways. Don't you think? Oh, 100%. 100%. But is the value in the person who's set in their ways, is the effort to bring them on board more important? Because that's the person that comes to you twice a day, six days a week for 15 years. Right? There's a lot Touché. of value in the customer. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> <laughs> so I... there's benefits to both. Um, I'll play, I, yeah. So I think it's, I think having, you know, having a, a sourcing model and a model of roasting that, that allows for them both is really important. Um, because that consistency also probably speaks to your wholesale account's primary concerns. Where would you go and buy your coffee and why? Would you do direct trade? You actually have a course on direct trade on coffeecourses.com. Uh, so would you recommend direct trade or would you just go and research importers? Yeah, I think you know, direct trade is beautiful. And you know, we... You and I, Valerian, have both come across, I'm sure that we have some listeners here, folks that are getting into coffee because of their experiences out in the world, right? I mean, I have a client who's done development work and run large NGOs operating in Central America. And you know what? It probably makes sense for that person to do some direct trade. They know coffee producers. They know the folks that they want to buy coffees from, Um so, you know, if you already have some connections with producers, by all means, I mean, that can be beautiful. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, though, put all of my eggs in one basket. Um, and that goes with importers as well. Um, I think, you know, for most folks, it makes sense to start with a couple of importing companies, get to know the salespeople there really well, make sure that they get to know you and your tastes and your budget also. Um, so that's that's typically where I would start. And I think the direct trade can come either later or the direct trade is maybe like a small component with just like one or two coffees that you can focus on from that angle. I, I think I mostly agree with you. I could tell to the listeners that, hey, do direct trade and go and buy the course. But, you know, honestly, it's the fact is that if you are starting a coffee roasting company, to have another monkey on your back to deal with direct trade or direct trade, as I like to say it, it it's just hard. So although Green Plantation now, I would say, is much bigger than when we started, we still buy from importers. We have a very small team and we try to make our team super, super focused. Direct trade right now for us is not an option. And, and direct trade, I mean, what, what does it even mean, right? Like there are mm -hmm. no dictionary definitions i think we all have assumptions about it um but kind of i think at the core of it so many roasters want to feel like they have a relationship with the people that are growing their coffee um and and to my mind you know what's more important is trade which just speaks to a financial transaction is that the most important thing or is it a relationship is it building a friendship is it understanding the producer's unique challenges, their unique opportunities, um, and 
kind of building a relationship where your partner's in success, right? Um, and to me, if it's just the trade piece, that's very different versus a relationship. But you can build relationships with producers with your importer. The importer doesn't preclude having a relationship and having a direct connection to the people growing your coffee. Totally. I love what you just said. This is amazing. Like the difference between direct trade and relation, because you basically separated these things. A direct trade is going to the uh, origin and buy coffee. It can be anything. You can rip off the farmer. You can, you know, not care about the story. Just go there and buy it. Uh, and an importer can do a service for you for that or whatever. Right. And I would much rather like sit down and have a conversation with a producer right. that's maybe facilitated by an importer and maybe, you know, they're people that are on the ground in that country can also like ask some questions and provide a bigger story. I mean, it might just be translation, but hopefully it's much more than that as well. And because the importer has a pers unique perspective that I'd want to include also. Um, mm -hmm. And it can still feel very direct if your importer is willing to be transparent about the cash flow about their margins, about their financing fees, about their overhead, right? Like, great, let's just, I want transparency. Um, yeah, can I add a couple of nuts and bolts comments about working with importers, Valerian? Go for it. I think, um, you know, don't feel like you have to call an importer that's right in your backyard. You can call an importer kind of anywhere, definitely anywhere in your country, probably anywhere on your continent. Um, because what really matters is where do they warehouse the coffee, right? Here in the Bay Area, we have a lot of coffee warehouses, and I'm certain that I could call an importer in Florida, and they would have coffee available for me close by. So don't be, don't feel limited by geography, right? Um, I think number two, get to know a couple of different importers, just like roasting companies have their own approach and their own philosophies and their own kind of aesthetic importers do too right and some importers are really good at certified coffees some at the relationships others at very exotic coffees so just get to know a couple right like you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket either you know what happens if the relationship goes south um you want to have somebody else that you're also buying from or they get bought out by other importer exactly to us yeah um and I think, you know, and along with that, though, like develop a really good relationship with whoever your sales rep is at that importer. Um, because, yeah, you know, you don't want to spread it super thin. I think like go deep with with the few importers that you're working with. But think of that importer as your eyes and ears. They are tasting way more coffees than you're ever going to taste if you're a roaster um, for at all quality levels. And give them feedback, right? When you call them and ask for samples, they send you samples, give them feedback. Tell them good or bad what you liked about the coffee, what you didn't like, why you're not buying the coffee or why you are buying the coffee. You know, even if it's as simple as, you know what, thanks for the Tanzania sample. I found a coffee that tasted exactly the same for 50 cents less per pound from your competitor. Whatever it is, give them feedback with the ultimate goal being just a more efficient relationship. You know, instead of sending you nine coffees from Guatemala to taste when you call them up and you only are interested in buying one, maybe next time they send you three coffees and you find two of them that you want to buy. Um, and along those same lines, as you get to know them and they know you, they'll also be likely to pick up the phone when they find something new or something that's just shipping that they think you might want to buy. So you can get access to coffees that you might not otherwise have. So I, you can tell I was a green coffee trader for a while, and I liked to stay very close to my customers because I wanted, I wanted to know what they liked and didn't like. I wanted to be a partner in their success. Um, it wasn't always about closing the sale. It was about understanding their needs and trying to find a way to fulfill them. Oh, this is awesome. I, I see the picture from other side as a buyer we also have relations with multiple importers we are using now probably two three importers and recently i had a horrible experience which i was like shocked that this even exists and the importer stopped selling sending us the the price list 
and I send them an email that, hey guys, we're missing your price list. I know we didn't buy for a while, but we didn't even ask for samples. We just want to see what's an offering because we're always looking for new coffees. Mm-hmm. And the guy's like, but you didn't buy anything, so we're not going to send you anymore. And it, it was actually pretty rude email. It was written more like snooty way. And I was like, well, honestly, F you. We buy most of the coffees from the companies where we have close relation and we talk the most to the to the sellers and not only about coffee but on facebook we wish each other happy birthdays or stuff like that you know yeah. these are small things but they count because i've it's an issue of trust i trust that person and honestly with our main importer sometimes it happens that we need very fast some coffee because we were a bit not vigilant lazy or we made a mistake that we did not add samples ahead and we suddenly run out of some coffee and we need to replace it Mm-hmm. I call them and I say, look, I want this, this, this in the coffee. And they say, yeah, you know what? I think 99.9% times they sent us maybe even something better than we would pick. So a good yeah. relation, you're right. It's super interesting. And it's kind of interesting how from a perspective of a seller, you know, somebody who is at the importing company, you described how this works. So yeah, yeah. It's, it's super important to have that relationship and nothing's better than like tasting a pre-ship sample or, you know, building a lot when you're on a farm in Rwanda and being able to pick up the phone and text somebody on WhatsApp and say, Hey, I just tasted a coffee. It's going to ship in two months. Do you want to contract 15 bags of it? So you've got your name on it now. Like, that's awesome. Like I want to be a problem solver of that type. Right. So if you would open a company tomorrow, how, how would you go about your coffee roaster? Like picking my actual machine to roast coffee on, right? Yeah, and also what's your advice? Because you, you, I think it's in your course too that how one should go about it. And what would you do as a person, you know? Because there's a theory and there's a practice, so go right. for it. Boy, I, um, I mean, number one, I would just have paralysis of choice because there's so <laughs> many great roasting machines out there right now um, <laughs> that it would be really, really tough. But you know, I think the first consideration of course, is you're going to have a budget um, and you need to compare your budget to your goals and you need to make sure you're getting a roaster that you can afford and that will roast enough coffee for you to actually have a business. Um, Valerian and you and I have talked about this a lot before and we're largely of the same mindset on this where, you know, these cute one kilo, three kilo roasters, they're great fun. They can roast awesome coffee. But if your total production capacity is only um, three kilos an hour, right, that's not a business. You're, right. you're spending all of your time roasting coffee and none of your time like actually selling coffee. Which is so, the main thing you should do, by the way. So go ahead. It is, right? There's a lot to running a business from you know the branding, which we're not going to talk about, but like maintaining your brand, connecting with customers – selling coffee, dialing in espresso shots, customer service, answering emails, like it's, it's endless. So you don't have endless time to stand in front of your roaster. So I think picking a roaster that's an appropriate size that you can run a business on is important. And I, I would suggest nothing smaller than 10 kilo. Oh, interesting. You know, maybe, maybe like a five or six kilo roaster. Um, of course, you can get by and you can run a successful business with that. Um, the risk becomes, you know, even if your aspirations are small, what happens as soon as, you know, you're selling at the farmer's market, you've only have like one day of roasting a week, everything feels great. And the local baker who's also at the farmer's market picks up the phone on a Tuesday and says, hey, I love your coffee at the farmer's market. I have six locations in this region. Each one goes through 50 kilos of coffee a week. Can you provide that? And then you're suddenly scrambling for capacity. Yep. So, um, so I just think take a, a really hard and honest look at yourself and what capacity you need. And I would recommend waiting to start your company if it means getting an, a, an appropriately sized roasting machine. Okay. Um, so that's, I mean, that's pretty functional. What do you, what, what are your thoughts on that, Valerian? Well, I did it multiple times. And I always made a mistake until I figured out that it's not, when it comes to size, it's not about what size should I buy. I would 
reverse the thinking there. It's like, okay, how much money do you want to make? Okay. And make a business model for your company and do the math, like yep. how big roster you want. And you are right. My math. And that's why I was like, oh, cool. Interesting. My math added up is between 10 and 50 kilo per batch, real batch, because obviously we have some uh, roasters which say, oh, we roast 15 kilos. But if you put 15 kilos there, you roast it for 25 minutes. So for yep. our roast profiles, you know, so just make sure that it, you, it roasts really 10. So 10 kilos per batch makes sense as a good start roaster. And going back to my mistakes, I think I mentioned them a few times, is that when I started my first cafe in 2002, it's called the Cafe Barista in a small town. It was a tiny, tiny room. And I was like, oh, you know what? I'm going to roast my own coffee. So I bought myself an Alpenrust. Alpenrust was an electric roaster, which roasts 250 grams of coffee per batch. And that did a calculation very badly that, you know, if I sell uh, 30 coffees a day, 30 espressos or cappuccinos, that will be enough. Uh, I was roasting day and night. I was roasting in my oven, man, just to fill up that stupid grinder because I sold not 20, 30, but 50, 60, which in a real world is a joke. A cafe cannot sustain on that, but I was naive. So please forgive me. Then I got the three kilo roaster, but that was a different situation. That was a basic, I was lucky and I found this beautiful 1938 Probat and I bought it for fun. And, you know, kind of we did also company with it. But then when we restarted in 2012, I was like, you know, my business partner, Peter, I was like, Peter, there's no way we are going to do three kilo roaster. We are going to do five kilo roaster, the five kilo minimum. And he's like, don't you think it's too much? No, Peter, five kilo is the, the thing we have to do. Oh my gosh, man. Exactly what you said happened in Bratislava. There's this called Dobriter, good market. It's kind of like a farmer's market style, very modern stuff. You sell used books, records, clothes, you know, artisanal food. And we were there and there was this very funky, weird dude who came to us and said, oh, you guys do coffee? Where do you do coffee? And, you know, we kind of laughed him off because he was, quotation mark, super weird. Turned out his artist who was starting uh, cafe in Bratislava, which became the best third wave cafe in Bratislava, the urban house. So then he opened another three. So we were, we were, we got such a big order that the five kilo roaster was working all the time. So we yeah. had to very fast upgrade to 15 kilo. So that's why we ordered another Turkish 15 kilo roaster, which rose actually 12 kilos realistically, but still that covered it. But the five kilo Turkish roaster was roasting only three kilos. So realistically again to keep the rose profile i think you guys be very careful but to think about it you want to start a business or you want to toy around and there's nothing wrong about toying around i toy around with pizza right i have a pretty expensive pizza gear at home and having fun with it but as soon as i would want to open a pizzeria i know that that will be not sufficient i can make plenty of pizzas a day I mean, you, you, Marcus, know. I mean, I was making pizza for your wedding. No, it's and amazing. It made a lot of pizzas, but it took four hours, you know. It's not financially sustainable. So when it comes to the size, I would definitely think about how much money you want to make to be sustainable. Yeah, and I and I love what you recommended, Valerian, is when you start on your business plan, you got to start at the end, right? What do you need to make to support your family, to grow the business, to you know, whatever your goals are? Start there and then start toying with numbers that get you to that point in the time frame you need to. Right. And I'll tell you one more thing, which I think is great. And I think that saved our bottom with Alnish Coffee is core working spaces. If I would rent out a space, roaster, if I would invest my money into roasters and packaging and all the stuff you need, Alnish Coffee would die would die right away, right away. It will take like six months and we are out because we did not make the volume. But four years later, we are here and we always make profit. So, you know, it's really cool to have a place where you can test out your uh, model. But on a serious roasters, because on a three kilo roasters, you will not test your model, your business. I mean, you will never sell enough coffee to know whether you can sell 150 kilos, right? Yeah, yeah no, and I, I love that. Yeah, we're so lucky to see more and more, I mean, as an industry, we're so lucky to see more and more roasting companies um, or co-roasting companies, shared roasting spaces come available. Um, yeah. 
And you know, of course, if there isn't one in your town, that could be a whole other business opportunity for you. If you <laughs> buy a roaster bigger than you need and you have some capacity, you could be open-minded to renting space on it as well. And that concludes our podcast. How was it? It was fun. It's good to catch up. It's always fun talking to you, Valerian, especially when we can dig into all things coffee. Shall we do the last promo that they can now, this is a special Black Friday edition, that you can get discount on Coffee Pro, 100 bucks, or on any uh, courses on coffeecourses.com, that would be 25%. Or you can go to bootcoffee.com and buy webinars run by our amazing Marcus Young, and you can get discount 15% if you use coupon code COFFEEISME. So fun code for any of the platforms here. If you buy Coffee Pro, you get also discount, another discount for the webinars. And if you decide to go for the webinars, you get another discount for Coffee Pro. So, you know, it's all tied. And the fact that you buy these products helps us uh, to make more free content, right? 100%. It's great. We love it. All right, man. It was so awesome to have you again. We didn't have wine, unfortunately, but next time we definitely have to pop some wine. Yeah, sounds good. And thanks, everyone. It's good to um, be connected with all of you as well. All right. Bye. Bye.